Well, I want to welcome you. Glad that you're with us this morning. We are diving deep this morning. Uh, So grab your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 1, put your finger right where verse 24 is. We're actually going to start in verse 24. We're going to be looking at some of the, really one of the, the most controversial passages of scripture right now in our culture. So that'll be fun. But we're going to talk about God's sovereignty and free will, a much debated uh, topic for uh, the centuries in the church. Uh, We're going to look at God's sexual ethic. We're going to talk about homosexuality. We're going to talk about salvation. Is it based on grace or works? Because I thought it was based on grace, but when I did my homework, I started to wonder, so we're going to talk about that. So let me pray. Father, I do say, oh, Holy Spirit, come. Teach us through your word. Give us ears to hear truth. Give us hearts to receive that truth. And give us courage to live that truth. And I pray against anything that the enemy would want to bring upon this time any distractions, any lies, would you bring truth? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me start by addressing Romans 2, 5 to 16, and here's what I got to tell you. I don't have time to address it, but <laughs> we're going to keep, we're going to get to more of that next week, but here's what I need to tell you about that section where Paul begins to talk about righteous judgment, right? And he begins to talk about a judgment that's going to take place, and it will t- take place. But what we need to know as we're reading Romans and as we study Scripture, anytime we study Scripture, we need to know that context, 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 it's important. What did Paul say before this section? What is he going to say after this section? Because what he's doing here is he's laying out an argument for the gospel to this early church that has two kinds of people in it. One kind of person who's saying, you know what? We're Christians, we're Christ followers, but you got to keep the Jewish law. And if you're going to be approved by God, you got to keep the law, then you'll be approved. Then you got another group of people who are like, oh, grace, 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 do whatever you want to do, it's okay. Um, And really, the gospel truth is somewhere in between. But here's the gospel order that's important. The order of the gospel is important. You can write this down. The order of the gospel that, uh, that Paul is going to lay out in Romans is this. I am accepted by God, therefore I obey. What we intuit, what we do default to is I must obey to be accepted by God. Okay? James, in his epistle, writes it this way, which theologians, kind of their commentary is, um, we are saved by grace through faith, right, or by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. It always produces in us a good work. But if you are living a gospel that says, I must obey to be approved, then your obedience is selfish, your obedience is dutiful, Your obedience is not what it could be, which is, if I'm approved, therefore I obey. If I'm already approved, my obedience comes out of joy, 
thanksgiving, delight, celebration, exaltation. That's all I got to say about that. So we got to, because we got to dive, we got to go, go quick to Romans chapter one. We're going to start in verse 24. It says this, therefore, and anytime you see a therefore, you ask what it's there for. So you look back, right? What was said before it? Again, context. What came before this? What's he saying? So before this, Paul is saying, therefore, because you knew, they, they knew God, but they didn't worship him, they didn't thank him, God gave them over, we're going to talk about this giving over, God gave them over in the sinful desires, and that word there is actually attached to what we talked about last week, it's, it's a Greek word that means excessive de- desire, it means I've got to have it, it's idol-shaping desire, it's a must, right, I must have this. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Okay? But before we get to sex we got to talk about God's sovereignty, God's control, and our free will because that gives us understanding to what does it mean that God gave them over. That sounds so harsh. That sounds so wrong, right? God gave them over to that. So we have to jump to verse 28 that says this. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. They chose a depraved mind. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge, the truth, the beauty of God, and so God gave them over to that choice. God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. God is giving humanity choices. He's giving them over to their desires, their excessive must-have desires. Tim Keller says this, he says, God's judgment is to give us what we want. God's judgment is to give us what we want. The things we serve, he says, the must-haves, the thing I have to have so that I know that I matter, so I know I have worth, those things that we serve will not free us. Even your religion will not free you if it's not the gospel. The things we serve will not free us, rather they control us. Right. God is not imposing a choice or a desire upon us in his giving over. He is not letting, he, he, what he's doing is he's letting us, he's letting them go their own way. God did not create robots. Is God sovereign? Is God in control? Absolutely. 
but he is not a puppeteer. He has created humans. And humans have choice. C.S. Lewis, as always, says it best. C.S. Lewis says this, if a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will if it makes evil possible, right? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of creatures that were worked like machines, robots, would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures, men and women, is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him. No one wants a love from somebody who has to give it out of duty. who was paid to love you, <laughs> you know, all those. God wanted to create a humanity that entered into the love that existed amongst the Trinity. God the Father loving God the Son, God the Son loving God the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit loving God the Father that's been happening for all eternity. And he wanted to invite us into that dance of love by choice. By choice. Back to verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now we know when we saw verse 24 also speaks of God giving them over to their desires for sexual impurity. And so I have to address God's sexual ethic. I want to say this. God created sex for a purpose. It's not just an animalistic desire within us. It had a purpose in God's design. God created, I believe, sex to be the covenant renewal act of marriage. You see, marriage was created as a covenant. We could go back to Genesis and talk more about why we know that to be true. But marriage is created as a covenant, a binding relationship, a unique relationship. And every covenant in the Old Testament, when a, when a covenant was made, there was typically a physical act combined with it that renewed that covenant or demonstrated that covenant. That's what we do when we pa practice the Lord's Supper, when we have communion. That's what Jesus set it up as. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm bringing in the new covenant, and I want you to keep renewing that covenant with me. And you're going to do that by taking this cup. You're going to do that by taking this bread. And sex, if you are married, sex is really important to that marriage. Because it is a renewal of your vows. 
It is a reminder of this absolutely unique relationship that I believe God designed for a man and a woman in marriage, a man and a woman to be married, and to renew that covenant relationship in a sexual way, right? With only one person. That's why it's unique. That's why it's special. That's why it's holy. It's with that person. And so sex was created, I hope, you know, have fun and all those kind of things with it. It's, cre- it's good. It's good. It's good. Right? And marriage is good. It's good. But here's where I believe the church has maybe gone a little sideways. It builds upon, again, what we talked about last week. Sex is a good thing. It's to be enjoyed in that context of another really good thing, marriage, right? But the church along the way has made those two things not just good things, but ultimate things. They are things that we have to have. The church has raised sex and marriage to an idolatrous status, I would suggest, right? You have to be married, and you have to have sex. And if we believe that sex is created, and we do, for the context of marriage, then boy, you better get married because no one cannot have sex. Because we have forgotten a fruit of the Spirit. We love the fruit of the Spirit, but we have removed one of them, self-control. And so the church has been jumping through hoops to figure out how to make sure you can get married because there's no way you can't have sex. And so, um, so purity rings, um, courtship, uh, we're going to try all, the, if you've been around the church for any kind of time, we're going to try all these things to make sure that our idol of sex gets put in the right place. Our, so we've made now marriage an idol, Right? See, if you're not having sex, the message the church has often given is something is terribly wrong. We have joined in with our world and we have agreed that a 40-year-old virgin is about the freakiest thing on the planet. The world and the church has bought into the shaming holiness, to shaming the holy invitation of celibacy. So we have a heterosexual who is struggling with sexual desire. And the answer from the church is, get married. You've heard the sermons, right? You struggling? Get married. Has that solved the problem? No. But uh, get married. This can be the only option. And I'm not saying, you guys hear me, I think marriage is beautiful, wonderful. Get married. If you can get married, get married. But we have... Given this message at times, get married fast. Don't date too long. How's that working out? Some people, awesome. Other people, total train wreck. Okay, get married quick, right? Or what the church also does is, again, we just kind of buy in and we go, well, yeah, what can you expect, right? I remember a friend of mine years ago saying she and her husband were in this couple's life group, 
And uh, she said, Cheryl, it's so weird. She said, and there were a number of couples in this group. She said, we are the only couple that didn't have sex together before we got married. Every couple in this group. And the attitude and the, and the, was kind of like, well, duh, of course. I mean, really? And these are Christians. These are Christ followers. These are folks in the church. But you've got to be kidding me, right? So then, so then you have a, you have a, a friend who's struggling with same-sex attraction. And the church isn't quite sure to how to answer that. Because our idols don't fit there. So one side says, just don't be same-sex attracted. Stop it. Now, I think the church has gotten better because that can be incredibly wounding. And let me say this. When talking about homosexuality or talking about same-sex attraction, I would way prefer to do that across the table than from a pulpit. I don't know that the pulpit is the best place to do that, right? Because when you're talking about humans and, and lives and stories and journeys, everyone's got a different one, right? Right. But one response, again, from the church has just been, uh, and I lived in Dallas in the 80s, you're not gay. That's just a lie. Well, easy for a non-gay person to tell somebody who's struggling with same-sex attraction they're not same-sex attracted. (laughs) Just stop it. That's the answer. Or the other side is, well, because of our idols, the other side is, well, it's just not fair. It's not fair that my same-sex attracted friend or sibling or, uh, you know, whatever can't have sex. It's not fair that they can't have marriage. And so we need to be fair. We don't have an answer. Because here's the thing in the church, and this is true for all idols and all sins, I think, is that we don't believe that our ultimate things, the things that we think we must have, can be withheld. We don't believe that those things can be resisted, right? The invitation of Scripture is an invitation to God. The ultimate invitation of Scripture, friends, is to God, not to a good marriage, not to better parenting, All those things are great and wonderful. They're all good things. Not to better business careers. The invitation is to God. And the invitation to God is always an invitation to holiness. Because he's holy. In every realm of our life, not just sex. The Bible does not present what might be considered the conservative view, that everyone should get married. Everyone should get married. That's not in the Bible. Doesn't present the liberal view, that marriage is whatever you want it to be. Do it, don't do it, live together, everyone can get married, everyone doesn't have to get married. 
the Bible offers an invitation to follow Jesus, who is the God of the universe, to surrender our lives to him. And his invitation to follow him is take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. And that is a hard invitation for everyone, no matter what you struggle with. Followership of Jesus looks like this question each day. Jesus, where are you going? I want to go with you. Jesus, what do you want from me? What do you have for me today? I want to align with you. And here's the thing that's so hard. God's will for us, for me, for you, is not predicated on our feelings or our desires. We have misused a psalm. And we have said that if you desire it, then God is obligated to give it to you. And that is a lie. That is not the meaning of that song. You see, you can have, and here's, here's where we get tripped up. Because I think every human being is a sexual being. Every human being has sexual desires and urges, and those are not bad or evil things. Those are all good, good things. But just because you have the desire doesn't mean that the satisfaction of those desires and the fulfillment of those desires is the will of God for you. We have desires for all kinds of things. That God says, no, not for you, not for you. I have something else for you. I have something else for you. Scripture says this, 1 Corinthians, flee from sexual immorality. Had a woman come up to me, I was so thankful, so honest, so real last night in the midst of an emotional affair. She's married, he's married. So appreciated her honesty. She said, what do I do? I said, you know what? Paul doesn't say think about it. He doesn't say pray. He says, get out of there. Cut it off. Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. His point isn't go cut off your right hand. His point is when it comes to sin, and I would say especially sexual sin, which is so strong in us. You know this if you were in high school. You're, you do not think straight when it comes to sexual desire. Nothing in your brain is thinking correctly, right? So you got to cut it off. you got to flee. you got to run. Paul says, because all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, God himself, who is in you? whom you have received from God, you are not your own. I love this passage. When you become a Christian, you give over your rights. 
Now, the good thing is you receive all the rights of God. But you are not your own. You were bought at a price. You were valuable to God. The very blood of Jesus Christ paid the price for you. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says it this way. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That word means to be made holy. To be made more and more and more like Jesus. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this ma matter no one should wrong, should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister, which I love that. That's why we seek justice, right? No one should take advantage of a man or a woman. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being. I love this. Anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, does not reject, you know, the institution of the church. Anyone who rejects this, this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. We reject God. The very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And what does his Holy Spirit do? It produces in you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Right? So here's what I want you to hear. God has a purpose and an intent for marriage. And I do believe it's for a man and a woman. God has a purpose and an intent for sex to be that covenant renewal act, to be fun, to be bonding, to, be, to, to bring you together, to, to be an expression of this very, very unique covenant that you have with one person. But neither of those things, marriage or sex, are the ultimate things. In God's economy, they are neither to be idolized, worshipped, seen as the ultimate. Some of you have kids, and the ultimate to you is when they get married. No, the ultimate for Jesus is when they come connected to him, well, walk with him, would go anywhere for him, right? Second, God's invitation in all things is to himself. And to come to Christ is to come to holiness. Third, the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. So here's what my gay friends ask me. I've had it asked. And it's, they, they don't ever really ask it. They say, I'm going to ask you a question, but then they make a statement. And, and I, I really truly can't count how many times I was trying to think. How many times have I had someone, a uh, friend or uh, somebody I've been talking to say this? They say this. You think I'm going to hell, right? Because I'm a pastor and I work for a church. <laughs> you think I'm going to hell? 
And I say this, well, according to the God I follow and the scripture I believe, it's much worse. We're all going to hell. We're all going to hell. This is what Paul's going to lay out, what he's laying out in Romans. For all have sinned, right? We've all turned away from God. We're all in the same boat. We're without excuse. And then I steal a line from my buddy Tim Keller. I heard him say this when asked about homosexuality, and I thought it was so good. Because here's the truth of the gospel, friends. No one goes to hell because they are homosexual. It is not the sin. There is no the sin. And no one goes to heaven because they're heterosexual, right? Romans 3, there's a whole lot of alls. All have sinned and fall short of the glory, the holiness, the worth, the value of God. Everyone. But all are justified freely by God's grace. The justification of Christ is offered to all, to everyone. Jesus is just and the justifier of all who have faith in Jesus. And here's the problem, church. We stop at that passage. We stop at the passage about homosexuality, and then we build our whole thing about it there. Could we continue in the scripture? Verse 20, 28. Paul says, furthermore, just as they did not think it worth, worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind, underline, every kind of wickedness, evil, greed. Anyone here never have greed in their life? I started underlining this, right? I think that was in your homework too to do. I start underlining everything I'm guilty of. Evil, greed, depravity, they are full of envy. Anyone here free of that? Murder. You're thinking, yes, awesome, never murdered. But then, <laughs> bless us. Unfortunately, Jesus addresses this. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you have hated somebody, if you have been angry at somebody, you have murdered. So underline murder. <laughs> strife. Strife. Because what, what Paul's giving a list of isn't just things we do, it's attitudes of our heart. Deceit and malice speaking ill of somebody, right? Gossips, they are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, which just means to be rude or disrespectful. Oh my gosh, every telemarketer has experienced that from me. Um, <laughs> arrogant, boastful, they invent ways of doing evil. I remember I became a Christian right before my senior year in high school, and for some weird reason, because no one recommends this usually, but I started reading the book of Romans, and this is in chapter one, so I got here pretty quick, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is me. They invent, 
I was fun, okay? Uh, but, but they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Uh, they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, uh, but also approve of those who practice them. Okay, and Paul, see the bummer here is that chap, this is the end of chapter one. Paul did not write this letter with, um, with chapter breaks. And so a lot of people, again, miss this. And here's what his audience is doing. Those uh, folks who really believed you had to keep the law, they're like, yeah, Paul, bring it. You know, you tell them, you know, they're sinners. They're doing bad stuff. We're law keepers. And then he says this. You, therefore, have no excuse. You have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now let me say this. Paul is not saying you can't make a judgment call. Certainly the scripture invites us to call evil evil and good good, to call right right and wrong wrong, right? But what he's saying is there is no place for condemnation. No one has the right to judge someone to condemnation. No one has a right to judge someone in their status with God. We just don't know. We're all guilty apart from the righteous acts of Jesus. He goes on, verse 2, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. God is the only one who bases his judgment on truth. So when you, a mere human, I love that, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you can show contempt for the riches of of God's kindness. When we judge another, we show contempt for the riches of God's kindness to us. His forbearance, that's his perseverance with us. His patience. Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Here's Paul's point. We are all guilty. We are all without excuse. But God is kind. God is kind. God is forbearing, enduring. God is patient. I love what Peter says, if you know the life of Peter. God was very patient with him, very enduring with him. And he writes a letter, and he says in 2 Peter, he says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Repentance is such a grace. The word to repent means to turn to turn from something to something. The theologian Martin Luther said, all of life 
in Christ is repentance. It's the great mercy that we've been given. His mercies are new every morning, says the scripture. Every day we get to repent. Every day we get to to start anew. We get a do-over. We get to turn from to, back to Christ. We get to turn from judgment. We get to turn from being judgmental, judgy people to kindness, to kindness. We get to turn from false gods to the one true God. We get to turn from sin, from that greed, from that envy, to holiness. And so, my encouragement my application, embrace God's kindness for you and embrace his kindness for all people. Embrace his kindness to all. I love that when Jesus is talking about uh, love in Luke chapter 6, and he says, you know, anyone can love their friends, anyone who can love good people who are good to them. He says, I want you to love your enemies. I want you to love them and not expect anything back in return. And then he says this of God. He says, because God is kind. God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Who is ungrateful? I'm ungrateful. I stop thanking God, Romans says. Who is wicked? I am wicked. My greed is wicked. My boastfulness is wicked. But God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, Jesus said, just as your Father is merciful. Go back to that list. God has enough mercy for your greed. God has enough mercy for your envy. God has enough mercy for murder, for strife. Are you guilty of deceit? God has mercy for you. Are you guilty of gossip, of encouraging it? God has mercy for you, for me. Are you arrogant? Are you boastful? There is mercy for that. You see, mercy is withholding what one deserves. Mercy is is withholding. This is what God does through Jesus. He withholds judgment. He withholds condemnation. And grace is giving us what we don't deserve. Giving us what we don't deserve. What do we don't deserve? We don't deserve Jesus' righteousness placed on us. We don't deserve to be made right with God. But he does that. Paul says in 2 Corinthians He, Jesus, who knew no sin. This is the most profound thing about Jesus. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. The the judgment of sin fell upon him on the cross. On our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. So that all that is good about Jesus is now true about us. His righteousness placed on us, undeserving, 
by his grace. Be kind. Receive the kindness of God expressed in mercy and grace. And extend that kindness to everyone around you. Mercy and grace. Oh, Father, would it be true of this community? Would we be kind because you have been so kind to us? Would we be merciful because you've been so merciful to us? Would we be gracious? Would we extend grace because you've extended grace to us? Would your kindness overwhelm us? Would your kindness move us? Would your kindness define us? Oh, Lord, thank you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.